Hello, I'm Amanda Berman. I'm a second year law student at the University of Nebraska College of Law. Recently, we were awarded a grant through NASA Nebraska to create a space law network. And to that end, we are recording introductory videos about space law as it stands today. With me today is Gabe Sweeney of the State Department to discuss Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty. Counselor? Yeah, so hi. Um, Gabriel Swinney. Uh, I'm an attorney advisor at the State Department and I cover space law um, for, for the State Department and, and for the United States government on the international side. Um, what I wanted to talk about was one of my favorite, um, I've called it my favorite, but I think right now it's my favorite article in the Outer Space Treaty, which is Article 9. Um, and for those of you who read it or looked at it, you'll, you'll see that Article 9 is actually this big, long paragraph that includes a whole lot of different elements, um, different legal principles, trying to solve different legal problems. So I really want to focus on, on one in particular, which is the due regard obligation. Um, but I'll set that up a little uh, before, before I get to what it actually says. Um, those of you who know about outer space or think about space things, um, you know that history has, has developed a lot in outer space, right? When the United States and the Soviet Union first started going to outer space 50 plus years ago, it really was government actors doing big projects that sort of everyone knew about, right? Large rockets, hard to hide, sending large payloads up in predictable, predictable places. And obviously that developed over the years and we have communication satellites, um, remote sensing satellites, all of which for the most part are doing predictable things. What I mean by that is they're in an orbit that typically is stable, right? They sort of go in a circle wherever they are in outer space in geostationary orbit or low earth orbit. Um, and most of them until pretty recently were quite large satellites. Um, so easy to track, easy to, to follow. Um, and the corollary of that is they're easy to avoid. Um, if you're going up and doing something else, you can see what else is up there and you can predict where they'll be and you can, you can avoid that. And really that was pretty much outer space for several decades, um, with the exception of debris and pieces that would fall off. The intentional activities in outer space were, were pretty easy to, um, what the military would say, deconflict. Right? It was pretty easy to deconflict operations between what you wanted to do in outer space and what everyone else was wanting to do. That's changing. And what's changing about it is the rise of all kinds of new things we're doing in outer space. Some of it has to do with commercial activities, the other has to do with government activities. Um, so for example, there's small satellites, lots and lots of small satellites that largely private companies, but certainly universities and governments are also putting up. They tend to be in low earth orbit right now, um, but the numbers are huge, dozens or hundreds of them potentially, potentially thousands some companies are talking about. So that seriously increases just the numbers. And of course these satellites, they're small, so they're easier, they're harder to see, and some of them don't have the ability to maneuver. That is, they can't, they can't shift around. They sort of are where they are and zip around just according to the laws of gravity. Um, they can't, can't maneuver at all. So that's one change. There's also at least the potential for new activities in outer space that we really haven't seen before. Things like mining the moon or asteroids, which could potentially cause, um, you know, debris flying off from the moon or asteroids potentially depending on what the technology is being used or at the very least would it would involve some sort of sort of industrial activity in a location also the possibility of commercial space stations um, there's companies working on inflatable space stations or inflatable add-ons to the international space station um, 
And of course, again, if you're doing something like that, if you have a hotel in space, for lack of a better word, you're gonna want some way to make sure that your people are safe, that there's no one else sort of showing up uninvited or that there's no debris coming towards you. So these are all different issues, but what they have in common in my mind is they increase the need to, um, to deconflict operations. Each one of these raises the potential of interfering with the activities of others in outer space or and or um, could be threatened by interference from other actors. So I think for the first time in really 50 plus years, we're really faced with a situation where, um, where we really have to solve this problem, where we have to figure out how, how do my activities not get in the way of your activities and what do we do if they do. So that's the problem, the sort of technical, technical problem. The legal tool we have to solve it um, is what we have in this 50 plus year old outer space treaty. And fortunately there is something, uh, and it's not a principle that we've really used very much because we haven't had to, but Article 9 does include two provisions that are potentially relevant. One is a non-interference principle. Now non-interference shows up in international law and other contexts as well. Um, the law of the sea and, and, and particularly in radio communications, for example. But the principle of non-interference that's in the Outer Space Treaty is quite weak. It basically says you actually can interfere, you just need to think about consulting before you do. So that's not a great, not a great deconfliction tool. But what we also have is a relatively, relatively unique, although it pops up in other places a little bit, concept of due regard. And what the Outer Space Treaty in Article 9 says is that states should conduct their activities in outer space with due regard to the corresponding interests of other states. Now, that's pretty vague. It doesn't really say specifically what you should or shouldn't do. And like I said, we don't have a lot of practice on this, um, very little, in at least explicit practice in exercising due regard. Um, so how that's gonna be operationalized is, is sort of an open question. But it is the tool we have. Um, you know, sometimes as lawyers, it's, it's nice to sort of fantasize about what you, could, what you would like, what you would like to create, what kind of rules you would like to create. And I'm sure all of us can design, could design rules that would be clearer um, or easier to follow. But the Outer Space Treaty is what we have. It's written in very general terms. I've described it as sort of the constitution of space because just like the constitution, it really talks about principles, not specific rules. So we have this sort of high level principle of due regard um, and we don't know exactly what it means, but I think it does mean a few things at the very least, right? One, you have to think about what your actions are going to do to others. You can't just sort of willy-nilly do things without considering the downstream effects, right? At the very least, due regard means that. Um, and if you have to conduct your activities in outer space with due regard to the corresponding interests of other states, there must be some, something you couldn't do, right? For this principle to have any kind of legal content. Um, there must be some extreme case at the very least that would violate the principle. Otherwise, what's the point of having it in the Outer Space Treaty? So at least at the margins, there's, there must be something. We could come up with hypotheticals, you know, tossing buckets of nails out the side of the International Space Station or something might violate the principle of due regard. Um, but somewhere in between there in this spectrum of, of danger or, or potential for conflict in activities, um, it must mean something. So what I think what we should do, and here I'm gonna speculate and, and look forward to the future, what I hope and anticipate will happen is that space actors, countries, companies, um, non-state, other types of non-state actors, such as academics um, or the nonprofit sector, 
um, should come together and start talking about what due regard can mean in practice. And that can mean different things for different operations, right? Small satellites. Maybe they need to have little reflectors on them that make them easier to be tracked by radar. Um, space hotels, maybe we can agree on some kind of standoff distance. You know, you can't approach to an inflatable bubble within five kilometers without, course, without talking with them first. I don't know. The details could be worked out. I think we could hang all these conversations on the legal concept of due regard and see them as implementation of this, of this outer space treaty obligation. So that's where I hope the international community, um, the space community will move in the next few years because we do have a real problem. And that's the best legal way I know to start solving it. Perfect, thank you so much for that overview of Article 9. We appreciate your time and help with this project.